All right, guys, well, I realize tonight's lesson, although I, I'm not really printing the lesson title, so you won't know till after the fact, but if you saw the lesson title, it seems a little bizarre. It's lesson three, Pentecostal baptism and baptism for the dead. Like, what did I sign up for? Maybe you just came here to learn a little bit about water baptism and, and what's all this? Pentecostal baptism and baptism for the dead. I'll explain a little background. Well, in our first two lessons, we've been studying some very significant forms of baptism in the New Testament, baptism in Christ and baptism in the Holy Spirit. And these, according to the New Testament, these are the spiritual realities behind water baptism. Now, water baptism is merely the symbol that points to these other realities, primarily our union with Christ. And they're really important. So we spent our first two weeks on them. Last time we were finishing up with baptism in the Holy Spirit In spirit baptism, we come to identify with Christ as our Lord and head, and and thereby we identify with all others who have Christ as their Lord and head. This baptism highlights the promised coming of the Holy Spirit to create a new covenant people of God, united by their confession uh, that Jesus is Lord. In salvation, the Holy Spirit makes dead sinners alive through regeneration. The sinner then comes to repent and believe in the Lord It can be said they're then baptized in the Holy Spirit where they receive the indwelling Spirit. And the coming of the Spirit upon them marks their union with Christ and union into the body of Christ, the church. And the Spirit baptism naturally takes place at the moment of salvation. It's for all believers, all true believers. There's no exceptions. This is something that happens at salvation. That's in real short fashion what we learned last week. But I started to tell you last week that not all agree that Pentecostals in particular have a much different understanding of spirit baptism. Now, I was going to talk about it a little bit last week, just for your exposure, give you some further equipping on the subject, but we were really pressed for time, so I bumped it to today. So we're back this week, and we're going to include a little teaching at the beginning here to help just make you aware of an issue that's out there. And I figured that given how prevalent and widespread Pentecostalism and thereafter the charismatic movement have become, which still retains most of them, this belief or these different beliefs in spirit baptism, I figured since we're doing a pretty holistic study of baptism, we should at least talk about it so you're aware that not all share that same view of spirit baptism. You sooner or later will encounter a Christian with a drastically different view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And well, at least you should know the differences. We can be aware and a little bit more equipped. I met once uh, the owner of my neighbor's house because they rented out and she is of this persuasion. I don't think she, she knows I'm a pastor, but I don't think she knows our differences there. And she was really talking down on those people who haven't got the Holy Ghost yet. They don't have it yet. They're a lower tier Christian. And and there's the the separation she she was talking about between the haves and the have nots. I've got the spirit baptism. They don't. It was, you know, it's interesting how it creates this really two-class Christianity. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So that explains part of what we're doing tonight. But given how this discussion on Pentecostal baptism, we bumped it into lesson three. And I meant I had to bump a few things out of lesson three and and keep pushing them forward. So a baptism and fire and baptism of suffering, we'll keep those for next week. That'll be okay. But we did have time to keep and include baptism for the dead. There's one verse in the New Testament that mentions, it it sounds bizarre at first, baptism for the dead. It gets a ton of questions. So likewise, I feel, I think we've got to talk about it. I think at least have to tell you about it, tell you what it means, do a little Bible study on it. So I guess 
it's fitting that these ended up together. You could call this, you could call tonight's study a study in misfit baptism, pretty much. Uh, But even studying aberrant forms of baptism can tell you further about real baptism and what it really means. So it'll still be profitable, and we'll we'll go through these. So we're going to start. It's really two halves. They're not related. It's kind of random, but we're just going to throw them together and call it lesson three as we're studying the many different types of baptism in the Bible. So let's do this now. First, Pentecostal spirit baptism. Give you that little uh, intro from last week. Pentecostal spirit baptism. And Pentecostal movement began with the notion that the church has gotten spirit baptism wrong for the past 1900 years. Instead of being filled with the spirit at salvation for all believers, some Christians started to believe that they should experience exactly what the apostles experienced in Acts chapter 2. The apostles, they were already saved, but they had another filling of the Holy Spirit uh, to enable them to have power and witness, and thereafter they spoke in tongues. On New Year's Day, 1901, there was a group of students under the leadership of Charles Parham, and they were, for a little while, desperately seeking this spirit baptism that had been lost in church history, and they claimed to have experienced it. New Year's Day, the spirit came on them, they spoke in tongues. These ideas ideas spread to Los Angeles, and in 1906, a pastor there believed he experienced the same thing. He had received the spirit, he spoke in tongues. And that sparked what was called the Azusa Street Revival. And that's typically taken as the beginning, the actual beginning of the Pentecostal movement. It's called that because of their view of Pentecost, Acts 2. And you can already tell, absolutely fundamental to Pentecostalism and, and later charismatic theology is this different understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And to them, baptism in the Spirit doesn't take place at salvation, but sometime after salvation. They acknowledge that Christians receive the Spirit in a limited sense at salvation. But then you you need another experience, a second filling of the Spirit to really achieve the power of God that's that's intended for you. You need a filling, a second filling, where you're going to receive a a higher spirituality, spirit baptism. And they teach that this baptism is to be sought after. And most of them hold that it's always accompanied by speaking in tongues. So you know you got it when you finally speak in tongues. That means you you finally got the real filling of the Spirit. They say all Christians should expect this and attain it. But as many of you know, I've talked to many of you came out of some of these movements. It puts intense pressure on a person to then think, I don't want to be the the have-not here. I need to to figure out the speaking in tongue thing real fast and, and do it so I'm not left out. I want to be spiritual. I want to receive the fullness of God's power in the Spirit, and it's the pressure forms to speak in tongues, and well, it goes from there. Anyway, Pentecostals believe this because they take the events of Acts 2 as normative for the church today, where the apostles did receive the Spirit, and then they spoke in tongues. And they believe this experience is supported by the fact that three other times in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit came on people in a special way, Acts chapter 8, chapter 10, Chapter 19, we'll look at those. You see different groups of people receiving the spirits and two out of three times they speak in tongues. So this is how charismatics interpret the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's some sort of power encounter with the Holy Spirit that, uh, that should result in uh, just receiving the power of God and thereafter speaking in tongues. 
you get the Holy Spirit, and then you get finally the power to do miraculous things and achieve a, a greater spirituality. The purpose of spirit baptism is to give believers a, a greater experience of God's presence and power. But we, and really all non-charismatics, would sharply disagree with that, that understanding of spirit baptism. If you want to know what we believe, well, that was all of last week. That was spirit baptism in, in the New Testament. But I do want to explain this, like I just said, for your edification and for your exposure to the issue. Which you have to realize, as we, we saw last week, that the event of Pentecost was not just an experience in Acts chapter 2. That was not just an experience. It was completely tied to the new covenant salvation of Christ. And that Pentecost is at the very heart of Christ's finished work. Why don't you think about this? How would you, how would you describe the order of Christ's work, the mission he came to do to save people, right? What's the order of that work? Life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. You, you probably stop there, but no, the, the sending of the Spirit. That, that's the capstone to his finished work, his finished work of atonement. Pentecost is essential to that. The Spirit's coming is not some secondary experience. It's part and parcel with Christ's finished work. And think about this. If Pentecost never happened, if the Spirit never came like Jesus promised, he would have finished all of his atoning work on the cross. That was finished on the cross. But that work would never be applied to anyone. And no one can get saved without the Holy Spirit affecting the atonement in their lives. So if the Spirit never came like Jesus promised, there's no new covenant salvation. And without Pentecost, there's no resurrection life in the Spirit, which means sinners are still dead in their trespasses and sins. And really, the coming of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 signifies the beginning of new covenant salvation, which is something that God promised. That God was finally pouring out His Spirit on, on all people, who believe, per Ezekiel 36 and many other passages in the Old Testament. And the point is, Pentecost is not an experience to be repeated over and over again. It's a once-for-all event in God's redemptive plan. It's no more repeatable than the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, if that's true, you're going to ask, well, hey, what about those three other times in Acts where the Spirit came on people in a special way, right? What's that all about? Well, the answer is in Acts if you just read and study closely. And so let's study a little bit the true significance of the Spirit's activity in the book of Acts. You got to remember it goes back to chapter 1, verse 8, which in many respects is like the thesis of Acts where Christ said to the apostles before his ascension, Acts 1, 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria even to the remotest part of the earth. And that verse really is the framework for the whole book of Acts. Now remember, God was changing things with new covenant salvation. He's throwing open the gates. Now all people could be part of Christ's body, even Gentiles. It's no longer just a, a primarily ethnic group. It's redeemed from all the nations in the church. And God was going to use the apostles and the Holy Spirit to, to show this, that it's a pretty radical change for these Jews, but change was coming. So you start in Acts chapter 8, actually. We already covered really Acts 2 in detail last week. I don't think we need to redo that. The Spirit came on the apostles. They spoke in tongues. Peter preached. 3,000 are saved. The church begins. That's the beginning of 
the new covenant body, the church. Now, at first, the, this church was strictly Jewish. All Jewish believers who confessed Christ, right? Only Jews so far had accepted Jesus and entered the church. But Jesus commissioned them to witness in Jerusalem and Judea, then even to like Samaria. But they weren't leaving. They were huddled up in Jerusalem and, Ju- and uh, Judea. It wasn't until the great persecution after Stephen's martyrdom that they finally were forcibly scattered. And so Philip shows up, or he's one of these guys, one of the, the deacons from Acts 6. He's not an apostle. He is an evangelist. He's scattered out of Jerusalem. The apostles stay behind, but a lot of people leave. And so he winds up in Samaria. He's there, got some Samaritans. He preaches the gospel. Acts 8, verse 12. It says, but when they, the Samaritans, believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And that's water baptism. Just these Samaritans were believing in Jesus and then getting baptized. That's good. Now look at verse 14, though. It says, now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them that had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now you ask, you know, why is this happening? Why was this recorded? Again, you have to constantly remember that the book of Acts is recording this very unique transition time from the Old Covenant to the new covenant, a new people of God is forming. And the book of Acts was largely written to help the church understand its new identity. Like, what what is this church? The church was exclusively Jewish, but it was not meant to be that way for very long. And now Samaritans are believing. But you remember how Jews felt about the Samaritans, right? They they hated them. These are half-breed Jews, half-Jews, half-Gentiles. They hated them with a passion, second only to their hatred of actual Gentiles. And so on their own, these Jewish Christians, these first Christians, they would not have accepted Samaritans into the church. It's their club. And a sign from God was needed to show them otherwise, to verify their inclusion in this new church. And that sign had to be witnessed by the apostles, who were Christ's representatives. They're the foundation of the church. Christ's the cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation. They had to witness this. And this explains the necessity of the apostles' visit to confirm the work in Samaria. And when they verified the conversion of the Samaritans, they laid their hands on them and they received the Spirit. And that was proof positive to the apostles that the church must not be exclusively Jewish any longer. Now, clearly God was allowing these these half-Jews in the door because these people, they believe the same gospel. They were confessing the same Christ as Lord. And now they were receiving the same spirit that the apostles received in Pentecost. How can they keep them out? It was an undeniable sign that God is expanding this people of God to include even the Samaritans. Who would have thought the Samaritans? It continues in Acts chapter 10 with the Gentiles. So turn to Acts 10. God is designing to bring salvation in Acts 10 to the household of Cornelius the centurion. And he's going to do so by sending Peter, the apostle, to visit him. But you may think, or at least they would have thought, Peter, how how can you do this? 
you're a Jew. You're not supposed to have anything to do with these Gentiles. You're not even to dare to eat with them. How can you go minister to this Gentile? He's not supposed to have anything to do with those who are unholy and unclean, i.e. the Gentiles. Now, at this point, there were still zero Gentiles in the church. Well, to prepare Peter for accepting, accepting Gentiles, God gave him a vision. As you can read Acts 10 for yourself, it's a vision of a bunch of unclean animals. And then God tells Peter, hey, take, kill, eat. And Peter said in verse 14, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. In verse 15, a voice came, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Right after the stream ends, servants from Cornelius show up to Peter like, hey, we're supposed to fetch you. Don't know why. They just take Peter back to Cornelius' house. But what did this vision mean and what's God doing here? Well, let's look at Peter's own interpretation of what's going on with this vision. It's down in verse 28 as he's talking to these guys now. It's in Caesarea. And he said to them, verse 28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit with him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. You realize Christ had already declared all foods clean. In this dream, it wasn't about food. It was about people. These Gentiles, these filthy dogs and pigs, they were no longer unclean to God. They were to be accepted into the church as equal members. And Peter himself applies the unclean, the unclean and unholy foods to these unclean and unholy Gentiles. And God has shown him, he says, I shouldn't call any man, not pig, not dog, any man unholy or unclean. Look down at verse 34. He starts to preach to them. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. He understands that, look, God's plan of salvation in Christ, it's for all, all nations, all who fear him. The doors are open. The church is going to be colorblind. This ethnic centrality is gone to the church. And the Jews had taken it way further into just like harsh racism. That has no place in the church as well. In the following verses, he preaches the gospel. And the, the people who are there with Cornelius, his household, they believe in their hearts the message, the gospel he then preaches. And now look at verse 44. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, that's Jewish Christians, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. They couldn't believe it. Like the Gentiles now are becoming Christians. Verse 46, for they are hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He asked him to stand for a few days. What's God doing here? He's making it crystal clear to Peter, who really was in many respects the, the chief apostle, 
that this church was it's not just Jewish and not even just Samaritan, that even Gentiles were to be included in this new people of God. And the Spirit came on them as they believed. They received the Holy Spirit. And then they're enabled to speak in tongues as a sign. Tongues is always a sign. The Jewish believers were amazed because you know, these unclean Gentiles are, are believing. They're receiving the Spirit. They're entering the church. That's just unbelievable to them. But again, what was their own interpretation of the significance of the Spirit coming on the Gentiles and speaking in tongues? They realized these Gentiles, they had believed the same gospel. They received the same Spirit as the apostles. And so they rightly concluded, who can refuse water baptism from them? Who can, who can keep them out of this church, this, this new movement who can keep them out? We can't. We have, we have no reason to keep them out. All of the past prejudices were just ended in that moment. Now, later in chapter 11, the next chapter, Peter goes back to the other apostles. He tells them what happened. And at first, they're upset. Why are they upset with Peter? They're saying, how could you go eat and spend time with uncircumcised Gentiles? They're upset that Peter went to minister to Gentiles. Peter explains everything to them. You can read the the chapter. Look at verse 15, though, jumping ahead. Verses uh, 15 through 18. He's just reiterating what happened, and he said, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. See, Peter himself, he connects the dots. He's connecting that the coming of the spirit to the same spirit baptism they received the same gift they received, the same sign. And he understands God is showing something. He, he's connecting the dots. How can I stand in God's way? And what's God doing in this? Bringing these people in the church. So God did not pour out the spirit on these Gentiles and enable them to speak in tongues simply so that they could have a cool experience. This was a sign verifying to the apostles and the church that Gentiles were now to be included in the church. And as such, this was not meant to be repeated, nor was this repeated. As with the Samaritans, you have these one-time events during the transitional period of the church, explaining the church's new identity. The Samaritans receive the Spirit as a special sign. This people group is included. The Gentiles now receive it, showing this people group is included. And God is breaking down the dividing wall. Now, there's one more instance in Acts 19. Let's look at one more here. Acts chapter 19. And we'll read verses 1 through 7. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, 
into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the, with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And they were in all about 12 men. This is the third and final instance of a group receiving the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. The significance is, again, it fits, it's simple, it's straightforward. These were disciples of John the Baptist. They were Old Testament, Old Covenant saints. But they had come short of the revelation of Jesus, the Messiah. They were genuine in their repentance, but they had not come to Christ yet. They're still essentially living in the Old Covenant. And after Paul told them about Jesus, well, they believed. They were baptized. They received the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues. And this was another sign to the Apostle Paul that now old covenant believers belong in the church. The old and new covenants are not going to run in parallel. God is, is, is no longer keeping the old going, so to speak. He's showing that there's no place for a people of God outside the new covenant. You're either going to be in Christ or you're going to be outside Christ. That's it. This is a short transition period that explains really the book of Acts. This is the transition between the covenants, the old and new. And this comes about to show that, well, old covenant believers, they've got to play in the church. Again, you got to go back to Acts 1.8. God commissioned the apostles to be his witnesses from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and then to the remotest parts of the earth to the Gentile world. And that's really what happens in the book of Acts. It's the entrance of all these people groups into the church. And don't forget, that's what the baptism of the spirit is really about. Remember, it signifies one's entrance into the church. The key verse, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, which explicitly tells us what it's about. It says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks whether slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Versus a real problem for Pentecostals, actually, because whatever this baptism of the spirit is, it's clear it's for all believers, and it happens at the moment of salvation. That part's just crystal clear, and that's in direct contradiction with what they believe, that it's, it's only not every believer gets it, although they should seek it, and it happens after salvation that just runs contrary. Also, the sign of tongues that accompanied spirit baptism a few times in Acts, it's not meant to be repeated every time someone believes. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14 that not all will speak in tongues. Well, that might be chapter 12. Not all will speak in tongues. And the vast majority of conversions in the New Testament were not accompanied by any signs, and certainly not tongues. Like Peter preaches after Pentecost, 3,000 are saved, and there's no mention of them. Those 3,000 people speaking in tongues. You know, rather, God was signifying with the sign that Samaritans, Gentiles, Old Covenant believers, they're included in the church by the work of the Spirit. These were very hard things for these Jews to believe. So God gave them a sign to help them believe. And that's the whole point of these signs, right? This was the creation of a new covenant community that confessed Jesus as Lord, and, and they're all in. 
We might add that the book of Acts is historical narrative. Remember, it, it describes what took place during the transition time from the Old and New Covenants. But along those lines, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. You've heard that before, right? It's describing what took place. It's, no, it's nowhere prescribing for us everything how we are to live. Like we should choose elders by drawing lots. Should we do that? Nope. Many things, many, that's what they did in Acts 1, right? They cast lots to, to, to pick a Judas's replacement. You know, many things in Acts are not normative for the church today. Pentecostals take, the whole thing is normative, and they're failing to understand the book of Acts and its place in the canon as narrative, historical narrative, descriptive, and, and showing the identity of the church as the new covenant people of God. So the whole idea of baptism in the spirit in Acts being some sort of special blessing is off. In Pentecostals, they don't actually make too much of Pentecost. They make too little of Pentecost. They reduce it to this power encounter with the Holy Ghost that enables them to do great things, work wonders. But God, what God was really doing with the Spirit in Acts is, is far greater than that. God was beginning his new covenant program. And what happened at Pentecost was the capstone of Christ's atoning work. Just the, the application of that work to, to, to people. All people. It cannot nor should not be repeated today. And so we rightly reject any understanding of spirit baptism as a second filling after salvation. All true believers are baptized and filled with the spirit in the moment of their salvation. There's, there's no exceptions. If, if you are going to be in Christ... That only comes by the Holy Spirit. You better receive the Spirit at salvation. Otherwise, you're lost. You're still not saved. But we know that he comes upon all who truly believe in their salvation, affecting their salvation, and bringing them into the new covenant body, the church. I think that'll do it for that. So that is Pentecostal spirit baptism. You can see the contrast with what we studied last week. And uh, hopefully that's clear enough to you. I think for the sake of time, we've got to keep rolling here because we've got a lot to squeeze in for baptism for the dead. But any questions, you can come after and we can talk more about it. But there's a little intro to Pentecostal spirit baptism and why we just we disagree with that. Now, we're going to totally shift gears. It's like totally different direction. These aren't really that related, but there's another little subject. As we're studying various mentions of baptism, various forms of baptism in the New Testament, this one just sits by itself, and I guess it's fitting. We can just throw it in here and a little study of misfit baptism, baptism for the dead. So we're going to switch gears and just talk about it. What is this baptism for the dead? You can open to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> Only one verse. Confuses many people. Well, let's read it. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. He says, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? And so what does this mean is the question, right? We should know first off, there is no practice of being baptized on behalf of dead people in the New Testament or in the times thereafter. There's zero record of that happening. Later on, there is a record of heretical Christians adopting this practice, but they were condemned 
along with the practice of being baptized on behalf of dead people in the 4th century. No Orthodox Christian practices baptism on behalf of dead people today, and rightly so. Not surprisingly, though, Mormons do. They still practice baptism on behalf of dead people. Based on this verse, it's proxy baptism, vicarious baptism, they might call it. You know, some person died. They weren't baptized. And so, supposedly, they can't enter the kingdom. And so, a believer who's still living will get baptized on their behalf. Now that dead person can enter the fullness of heaven. This is still current Mormon teaching and practice, unless they revise something that I don't know about, I guess. But they even got in trouble a couple years ago because they were being baptized on behalf of dead Jewish Holocaust victims, and it created quite an uproar. They stopped that in 1995, but they still continue to practice baptism for the dead. But this verse does not teach baptism on behalf of dead people. It teaches something else. We're going to find out. Some people have misinterpreted it to mean baptism on behalf of dead people, but that is definitely not what it means. The confusion comes from the English translation, I think at least, or many translations. It can be taken in a couple of ways. So you look again at verse 29. It really centers on the the preposition for, baptism for the dead. And and that language can be taken to mean a couple things. Baptism for the dead, baptism for the dead on behalf of the dead, baptism in place of the dead, baptism because of the dead. Which is it? What does this preposition for mean here? It really comes down to two possibilities. Is he talking about baptism in place of the dead? Or is he talking about baptism because of the dead? And they're very different. We need to understand these and find out. I think most Christians just already intuitively known, no, it just, that, it sounds wrong with everything I believe to think that someone would get baptized in place of someone who's already dead, that they can like finish their salvation or for some reason. That, that already sounds wrong. Doesn't that at least give you yellow flags? Now, if you take it that way, baptism in place of the dead, it's really, well, you'll see shortly how it's going to come in a contradiction with, well, everything in the New Testament. It makes zero sense. You'd be right to doubt that teaching. We need to take a closer look at what Paul is saying here. So let's, let's kind of break down. What's the baptism? Nobody really doubts that Paul is talking about water baptism. We can all agree on that. When he says baptism, in his mind, he's referencing water baptism. No one really disagrees. Pretty straightforward. This is a reference to water baptism. What about the dead? Who are these dead people? Well, it's likewise clear he's talking about physically dead people, not spiritually dead people. These are people who had physically died. Throughout all of chapter 15, he's talking about physical death in the context of physical resurrection. And even in verse 29, he contrasts the dead with the resurrection. So again, most agree, it's not disagreement here, that he's talking about physically dead people. And that's fine. But there's one important point to make that throughout this chapter, Paul distinguishes the dead in general from dead believers. Whenever he uses this word for dead, nekros in the Greek with the definite article, so the dead, he refer, he's referring to dead Christians. In this chapter, when he does that, he's always referring to dead Christians who likewise will be resurrected to eternal life. 
And that's what we have here. These are dead Christians. And that's significant. The dead people Paul is talking about in verse 29, there are almost surely dead Christians. They're believers who have died. Okay, that's fine. Now, a little bit more on the context of 1 Corinthians 15. You know, in, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, he's answering questions and addressing errors in the Corinthian church. And some of them were denying the reality of the resurrection for believers. So Paul is correcting that in chapter 15. Verses 1 through 11, he defends Christ's own resurrection, that Jesus really did bodily rise from the dead. Then in verses 12 through 34, he demonstrates the absurdity of denying the resurrection of believers. You know, if, if Jesus rose, it's absurd to think that believers won't. Otherwise, you'd be de- denying Christ's own bodily resurrection. And look what he says in verses uh, 16 through 18. He says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He's saying, look, if there's no resurrection of Jesus and believers, it's all for nothing. It means Jesus did not conquer sin, Satan, and death. It means our, our sins are not truly forgiven. We're still dead in our sins. And that this whole Christian faith thing is worthless if there's no resurrection. And thankfully, we know that's not the case. That's what he's arguing here in the chapter. Anyway, down in verse 29, Paul is resuming a series of rhetorical questions designed to show the absurdity of the Christian life if there's no resurrection. So he says, if there's no resurrection, why are people being baptized for the dead? And then verses 30 through 32, if there's no resurrection, why are he and other people suffering and even dying for the sake of Jesus? Right? So you need to see how verse 29 fits into his argument of defending the resurrection. Whatever this baptism is, it's something that becomes worthless if there's no resurrection of believers. Does that make sense? Whatever it is, we haven't figured it out yet, but whatever it is, his whole point is, This is a part of the Christian life, and it becomes worthless if there's no resurrection, like many things do. It still doesn't tell us what it is. Again, it comes down to the word for. This preposition is often used to mean on behalf of or instead of. So if you take it in that sense, it's teaching water baptism on behalf of or in the place of dead believers. But we reject that that view for many insurmountable problems. And first off, there's just no evidence. There's not a single shred of early church evidence of baptism on behalf of dead Christians. No evidence. Second, these dead people were fellow Christians. So they're already believers. Why would you be baptized for a fellow Christian? Some say that these fellow Christians died before they got a chance to be baptized. But in the early church, almost every believer was baptized immediately after conversion so that seems unlikely. And the most of all, look, baptism is not required for salvation. And that really leads to the greatest problem with this view. It's just ludicrous to think that Paul would be teaching salvation by baptism or or salvation by someone else's baptism after they're dead. It's just crazy to, to say. And 
And I'm not, I'm not just saying that. It's perfectly legitimate when interpreting Scripture to compare Scripture to Scripture, especially within the same author. And so just think about Paul's writing and theology. He's like the major champion of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works. That includes baptism. That would make it another gospel. And Paul himself condemned anyone who preaches another gospel justification by works? I don't think so. To think Paul could be advocating salvation by the work of baptism is, is crazy. It'd be contradicting everything he's taught in just one little verse. It's poor hermeneutics, poor interpretation practice. The New Testament never teaches salvation by baptism or even proxy baptism. Baptism does not contribute to your salvation at all. It's a symbolic rite after salvation that identifies you with Christ. But it's even more out of line for Paul to teach salvation by someone else's baptism, even after you're dead. Justification is always by your individual faith, never someone else's faith. And after you die, that's it. There's no second chances. It's appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. So after you're dead, They could baptize your corpse. Someone could be baptized for you. Nothing's happening. Nothing of spiritual value, salvation, sanctification, getting out of purgatory. Whatever you think is happening by this baptism in place of dead people, New Testament says nothing's happening. You've died. That's it. Your fate is sealed. Believer, unbeliever, that's it. Nothing is happening. Anyway, for many reasons, the early church was right to condemn the idea and the practice being baptized on behalf of someone who's dead for their salvation or for any other reason. But most, most were, were thinking this uh, and that the heretics that came later, this was for salvation. They think they could save dead people by, uh, by being baptized in their place, misinterpreting this verse. But that, that just outright contradicts the gospel. That we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, apart from any works. And certainly that includes baptism. So we're left with the question then, what is this baptism for the dead? Well, going back to the preposition, the word for, it can also be used to denote the cause or reason of an action. And so it's often translated because of or on account of. So for example, several times Paul speaks of his own suffering for, who pairs the word for Christ. Does that mean Paul is suffering in place of Christ? On behalf of Christ? No. He's suffering on account of Christ. He's suffering because of following Christ. Just one example. Likewise, it's best to take 1 Corinthians 15.29 to mean that some new believers were being baptized because of dead believers or on account of dead believers. There are actually many examples of this in the early church. You have many stories, like read Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's a few in there, that you had a Christian being martyred by the Roman pagans. But some in the crowd, they were moved by the faith of the martyr. And in that moment, they came to salvation just by the witness of that martyr. And they were therefore baptized. Why were they baptized? Well, because of that dead Christian, because of the witness of that martyr. There's many examples of that. It makes perfect sense. Fits the terminology of the verse, fits Paul's theology, fits the context. Where in the very next verse, verse 30, he speaks of his own danger 
of persecution and death at the hand of pagans. And so, to recap, you know, historically, the only people who've actually practiced water baptism on behalf of someone who's died are, are heretics condemned by the, the later church and Mormons today. But it really denies the true gospel. And it's, it's not even what 1 Corinthians 15, 29 teaches. You know, that preposition for can go either way and context determines. And sometimes that involves the wider context of just scripture, what Paul has taught. And here Paul is referring to people who were converted and baptized because of or on account of some Christian who had died. And they did so because of the hope of resurrection. And there's that final tie into the, to the context. You know, these people were not moved to conversion because of the hope of death. Like, hey, I want to die like that. I'm going to believe and be baptized. No, they were converted because of the hope that the dead in Christ don't stay dead. That they rise. That those who have died in Christ rise. And these people came to believe the gospel and believe that hope and were saved and were baptized. They were converted because of the hope that the dead in Christ will rise. And that's a reminder for us as well. We know only the dead in Christ will rise to eternal life. And that, that is good reason to believe. Whether it's someone else's testimony or the testimony of scripture, only the dead in Christ will rise. And only those who believe in Christ will rise in him. Well, that, that's our view, or at least that's my view of this verse. I do not think it's baptism that is teaching that people were being literally water baptized uh, in the place of dead people, but were being baptized because of those who had died and it's the witness of their lives. They, they came to Christ and were converted and baptized. But as a final little reminder here, it can lead us to a meditation to, to give thanks for Christ's finished work, his death and his resurrection, that we're saved by faith and faith alone. That there's no great work we have to do to earn or finish our salvation, be it baptism, the Lord's Supper, going on a great pilgrimage. There's nothing we have to do. That Christ already did the great work for us, start to finish. It is finished. He did it all. He died. He rose. He ascended. He sent the Spirit that we could receive the fullness of his finished work. So you don't need baptism to be saved, water baptism. You don't need a great work or ritual or pilgrimage or anything, but faith in Christ alone. And we can be thankful for that. That's the glory of the gospel. There's nothing we can do, but he did it all for us. And so as a a little conclusion, we can give thanks for that. That's a little study on, I guess, misfit baptism. It, It worked out that these two came together. They don't really belong to any of our other studies, I guess. So lesson three, Pentecostal baptism, baptism for the dead. We covered them. But we'll move on next week. We'll get back more on track with gearing into and getting closer to water baptism. Next week, we'll see even Christ's own baptism. And we're really getting into really the heart of the New Testament's teaching on uh, water baptism next week. So we will see you then. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we just want to pray and reflect on Christ, our Savior, on our hope. That we share in that that same hope, the hope of life, the hope of resurrection life. Because of what he did for us, not what we did 
or what some other person did on our behalf, not just because of water baptism or, or communion or anything we do. Our hope is in Christ alone, his death and his resurrection. And that's the payment for our sins. That's the gift of righteousness and, and eternal life. And we access it simply by faith, faith in Christ alone, which is brought about by the Holy Spirit who unites us to him and, and gives us that resurrection life now as a down payment. Those are great truths, Lord, and we're going to stand on the gospel and the glory of that gospel. And I pray we can even take away from just some Bible study tonight the, the, the joy we should have and the thankfulness we should have that, that we don't have to work out our salvation or do things, but we can rest on, on him and his finished work alone. And as Easter draws near, let that be our meditation throughout this whole month as we get into April. We just reflect on him and what he's done for us at the glory of the gospel. To him be the glory this evening. Thank you for our study. And may it just be profitable as we're equipped with the knowledge of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.